You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and technology. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors. We are a PR firm that focuses on music, tech, and music tech. And today's episode is what the fuck is blockchain? Sort of. Haha. <laughs> um, I might ask our guest that, actually. Um, and... Uh, really pumped to be able to introduce you to Steve Stewart, who's the co-founder and CEO of Vest and our guest today. How are you doing, Steve? Good, Dimitri. Thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, you having me on the show today. Yes, I'm psyched to have you. Um, we got into a, a quick uh, introduction and, and conversation and I thought, it's it, you, let's do this. Um, in fact, <laughs> <laughs> as you know, we you're in LA, right? Yes, yeah. We're doing the Music Tectonics Conference in LA, October 28th and 29th, 2019. And we wanted to mix things up a bit. And over the past year, I've been to several music industry conferences and there were several sessions on blockchain. And I noticed that a lot of the music industry folks were either in the hallway or at the back of the room kind of snickering. And <laughs> I thought, for music tectonics, maybe we could do something a little different. So we're going to do the blockchain cage match. Cage and match. Yes, that's right. So bring your monster trucks. <sighs> and <laughs> I'm hoping you're going to wear your your onesie tights thing. <laughs> spandex. <laughs> yeah, your spandex. Yeah. Exactly. Um, we'll have um, Arabian Prince, the one of the founding members of NWA. Nice. Straight out of Compton is going to be our referee. Um, and we've got Steve from Vest here is going to be in the blockchain Woo! <laughs> Listen to the crowd going wild. Um, Ken Umazaki from Dot Blockchain is going to be joining us. Nice. We've got um, those are some of the enthusiasts. We're looking for one more enthusiast. So if you're listening to this podcast, we want another blockchain enthusiast. We've got some skeptics, including um, Portia Sabin, who's just been appointed to head up Music Biz, the Music Business Association. Um, and, uh, we've got Brittany Foreman from downtown publishing is going to be joining us also as a possibly a skeptic <laughs> skeptics. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's going to be a fun thing to come out to do, but I thought, um, it'd be great to get you on the, the podcast and, and get people up to speed on where blockchain and, and the music industry is and specifically how Vest is using it. And, uh, we'll have a little bit of a pre, you know, a little pre-show. <laughs> so preview exactly so steve match. let me ask you what the fuck is blockchain and what does that do with music well first of all it's not the end-all be-all to solve every problem in the world because i think nowadays a lot of people use it as a catchphrase oh we'll just blockchain that we'll put that on the blockchain we'll, you know it'll, it'll make money through the blockchain it's really not all those things um at, at the very very base it's a digital ledger and you can expound on top of that. There's a million ways to go from there. But I think that's the basis of what it is. Um, it, it's a way to account for things. It's a way that uh, provides some transparency. Um, it provides an immutable chain. So it's something that can't be changed by people that are just coming onto it. Um, but I think most of all, it's a third-party neutral ledger that allows for truth. And I think in the music business, one of the major issues and inefficiencies is rights management and where you've got now got the average pop song today, I think has something like five or eight writers. Um, you know, each song has a basket of rights that go along with it. So everybody from the producer to the writer, to the performer 
has some type of share in that song. And to keep those percentages straight and to understand how they work throughout the life of that song and how they go through licensing and when the money and royalties roll in, how that's sorted out based on those rights um, has become an issue because each publisher, each PRO, each label in many cases has their own set of books. And I think what's important, and it's not just music, but anywhere where there's rights, <clears throat> we see this happening with title and in real estate, um, anywhere else where there's a lot of different moving parts, but people have to have one source of truth. Blockchain is probably a good solution at some point. So with Vest, we're a fractional music rights marketplace. So we allow the public to come in and participate in the royalty streams of songs, which has never been done before. So what we're trying to do is allow people to actually partner with and, and support the artists and music that they love. It, but part of that is understanding where those rights lay. So we have a song, say, from Beyonce. Uh, it's not Beyonce that's actually putting the song on. It's Beyonce's co-writer who wrote maybe 20% of the song. They have those rights available, and they want to monetize them from the public. So our, our platform, Vest, allows people to do that. But like I was saying before, it, it does need to have a touch into those music rights and understand where they're coming from, who actually owns them, and how, to, how everybody gets paid. So it's an integral part of the platform. Um, it is nascent technology. We think it is where things are going. Um, it isn't the end-all, be-all solution, but it is a way that is going to move, I think, this entire industry into much more transparency, into much more ease of use as far as someone that wants to license a song or see who the ownership is behind the song, um, because that doesn't exist right now. Right? Again, each publisher, label, PRO has its own database of who owns what, and sometimes those things don't match up exactly. So it seems it's, it's interesting the, um, the particular use case you guys have for blockchain because what it seemed like there was quite a proliferation of, of maybe a year or two ago were, in addition to um, initial crypto offerings from a wide range of companies and um, formats and, and so forth, but uh, a lot of them were streaming services that um, it appeared that they wanted to disrupt the music streaming world by putting everything not only on blockchain, but also um, making payouts in crypto. Um, unclear whether where that where the original value of the crypto was coming from. Um, and a lot of I think a lot of the skeptics that I heard in the music industry, um, their concerns were around well, you know, that you can't just build a streaming service and assume that there's going to be value there. there. There's, you know, if you don't have listeners yet, it's hard to get creators, music uh, writers and, and recording artists to put their, and labels to put their music on there. And, and it's hard to get listeners if there isn't any music on there. Um, but it's interesting that you guys, I mean, you, you chose a, a totally different, in, in a way you're like creating its a, a new independent marketplace. And, and in a way you sidestep a lot of the problems with blockchain as a result. Well, we, it's interesting you say that because it is something that was very conscious with what we put together. We wanted to work in the real world and real world means global collections, right? So artists that are signed to labels and publishers that are distributed globally. So in, you know, 235 countries around the world. And we've had a lot of discussions about tokenization and a lot of people saying, why don't you just tokenize everything? So when you know someone puts their song up, it's tokenized. When someone listens to it, it's tokenized. And that works in a very small pool. I mean, there's a there's a lot of companies like you mentioned that are coming out that say, look, if you come into our walled garden and put your song in here, and then a user wants to listen to it in that walled garden, they can you know have a token economy. That, that's great if you're an independent artist that has you know a hundred thousand fans maybe. But when you're a global artist with tens of millions of fans, 
Like Beyonce is not going to get paid in tokens. Sony Records does not want to get paid in tokens, right? ASCAP is not going to accept tokens as a license payment for their, their venues if they're playing music through ASCAP. So there's an entire collection and royalty economy that's already out there that's been in place for you know almost 100 years that collects in a way that's been very established. So while it might be a goal down the line somewhere, and there may be more efficiencies to tokenize the world, we have to go one step at a time. And, and we are very conscious in saying, how do we work within the royalty collection economy that's global? How do we work with an artist that are independent as well as signed? And how do we work with these big media conglomerates that are already have a payment structure in place. They're already working this way. It's very hard to turn a universal, you know, around and say, hey, universal, uh, tomorrow morning, everything's coming to you in tokens. This doesn't, doesn't work like that. So we've structured our platform to work with U.S. dollars. Uh, 96, 97% of all of our purchases are done with a credit card, right? You just go to the app. It's vezt.co. You can download it on Apple or Google. You put in a credit card. You look at the song that you like, you press go, and for as little as $5, you can own a piece of that royalty stream. It's very easy on consumers. They don't have to go to an exchange. They don't have to transfer this into that. They don't have to open up three bank accounts in eight different countries. It's a very simplified process, but it's that way for a reason because the other economy hasn't been developed yet, right? Um, There are a lot of people that are looking at it. And again, for an independent artist with a limited fan base, that can work very well. We wanted to tap into artists that are reaching people at the millions and, and globally. So it, it was slightly reduced from the tokenize everything idea, uh, but we brought it down to something that is workable today and practical for both artists and our users. So if you're not using tokens to, to pay out artists or to pay back investors, um, how is blockchain being used invest? So we use blockchain as a digital ledger system. Um, we realized that we could drop that information into any ledger, but by making it a public, transparent, immutable ledger was a benefit. And again, most we're, we're one of the first blockchain platforms that's live to the public. People talk about this all the time. We've gone to conferences for years where people are scheming and oh, we're going to launch, we're going to do this, we're taking in money. Show me something that's actually on the market today, right? Vest is actually live. We've been live since September of last year. Um, we use it again in a very sparing way. We, we touch it lightly. We have a transaction hash that's created when you make a purchase. That hash includes the time date stamp of where and when that, that purchase was made. It includes the user ID of the person that actually made the purchase and it includes a tag that shows the rights that were purchased. So the three or four major components of that purchase are basically indelibly written into a blockchain as a record that can be accessed by any third party, by the public at any time away from our company. It's a third-party blockchain that exists in the public. And again, that transparency is what we're pushing for. So our thought is as more and more companies and more and more creators get comfortable with the idea of having things out there in truth, there'll be more nodes, right? So if if Sony ATV Music Publishing wants to come on and and say, look, we're going to put all of our information available on this public blockchain, Warner Brothers comes in and says, I'm gonna, we're going to put our information on blockchain. At some point, there will be much more transparency, much more ease of use between these different players. Right now, that doesn't exist. So we touch it lightly. Um, we also know that, it, again, it's nascent technology, right? This is very, very early days for blockchain. So we didn't want to put all of our eggs in one basket and say, look, our entire platform runs only on blockchain because crypto kitties, right? We started with an ERC-20 protocol. And then we saw what happened with ERC-20. I mean, back in the day, Ethereum was the only smart contract option we had two years ago when we started building our platform. 
Today, there's probably four or five major players that are much quicker, have a, a lower transactional cost. Um, so we built ourselves to be flexible amongst those different players. In fact, we're migrating to Stellar at this point because it's a much more robust, much less expensive, much higher velocity platform. So there are differences that are inherent with any new technology that comes out. We built our platform to be flexible and to be able to actually make those changes rather quickly with very, very little you know, fallout. So I want to ask you a question. So you, you mentioned those those uh, hashes about each transaction and mentioned that that data is available publicly on a third party. Um, if I'm a investor or even a, a songwriter that's using Vest on one or the other side of the market, how do I get to go and see that data in an independent uh, context? So you could go to Etherscan or you can go to Stellar's equivalent. And, and see exactly where those rights have drawn out. Um, and for the artist side, basically their deal is with us. So we are a marketplace, um, but the way it works in the marketplace is say you're a songwriter and you have 15% of an Adele song. And you say, I want to put up 2% of my song and I want to raise $30,000, right? So we will work with you on the royalty statements. We'll take a look at what type of rights you're offering, whether they're master rights, songwriter rights, or publisher rights. We'll go over the statements with you and say, look, here's your earnings over the last year and you've earned, I don't know, $8,000 on that song. So if you want to do X percentage of that over three years, this is the number that we're recommending. We don't set pricing. So we let the artist or the creator or the writer set the pricing, but they come back and say, look, I want to do this for $10,000. Great. Okay, fine. We agree. They sign our onboarding agreement. We get what's called a letter of direction uh, from whatever rights holders, uh, pardon me, source of those royalties would be. So whether that's a label or ASCAP or BMI or a publisher. Um, that gives that percentage over to us. And then we put it up on our platform through what's called an ISO, an initial song offering. So that goes public for 30 days. Um, anybody in the public can buy in from $5 on up to the maximum number of the raise. Um, once that closes, all that money goes to the artist or the rights holder at that point within 30 days. Um, it's, it's basically a fiat transaction from the buyer to the seller. Uh, and then when the royalties come in, say it's an ASCAP deal through songwriter shares, um, a royalty comes into ASCAP, whatever the percentage is, is broken off to us from ASCAP, and then we make the distribution to all the buyers. So from the artist's perspective, there's really nothing to do. They've, they've received, say, three years of royalty income in 30 days, and as their royalties come in, that royalty comes in to pay back the advance they've gotten from the buyers. So it sounds like you need a lot of cooperation from PROs, publishers, labels. How's, how's the response been to that? It's been really good, actually. Um, we've the PROs. Um, I have to say, they're 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 some of them are very proactive. A couple of them are, are very very old school. Um, one of them still asks for faxes, which I, I don't think I've even seen a fax machine in maybe five years. So I'm not sure how they're working internally, but uh, they understand what we're doing. I, I think it's it's a brand new paradigm for them, so it's difficult for them to wrap their heads around completely. Uh, they do know that we're increasing the value of music. So they understand that every time we have a song on our platform, it's going to the public and the public is being reinvigorated to come in and actually, you know, put dollars behind these royalties. And they see that as a good thing because it builds the value of those songs. As far as labels and publishers, same thing, right? To them, they're getting a time value of money. So again, they could get three, five or 10 years of income within 30 days. So that means something to their balance sheet. The other thing they get is, access to this buying pool of data, right? They have never really had a relationship with the retail consumer. Believe it or not, labels and publishers are all B2B businesses. Now, labels employ distributors like Spotify or iTunes or Best Buy or Target to actually sell their goods. But guess who has the consumer data? Spotify, Apple, 
Target and Best Buy, right? So Atlantic Records has no idea who's actually buying. And by the way, neither does the artist signed to Atlantic Records because the artist delivers their record to Atlantic. Atlantic pushes it out through those distribution channels and the actual consumer data is somewhere else. But we think that the creator and the consumer should be put together. We think that there's value in that relationship and those are your customers. If you're an artist putting out music, those are the people that are buying from you. So in the same vein, the labels and publishers would like to see that type of relationship. They, they have never been consumer facing. They realize there is a value to having a consumer relationship versus just a, a wholesale relationship. The other thing that they have is assets, right? They've got millions and millions and millions of songs in their catalogs. I think Universal, for example, has 8 million songs at Universal Music Publishing. They can't possibly work every one of those songs to their best ability. I think they have eight or 12 creatives throughout the United States working 8 million songs. It's just physically not possible. So they work the top 2% of those songs. The other 98% really just sit there and collect, but no one's really going in and actively trying to build the value, which is what our platform does. We go out to consumers and say, hey, remember that Tom Petty song that you really liked from you know, 1989? Here it is. Wouldn't it be great to share in the royalties of free falling, right? The labels aren't doing that. The publishers aren't doing that. We're doing that. And there's 18 million Tom Petty fans they would love to share in a piece of their favorite song. So that's kind of how we're providing this, this value. So so there must be some resistance from certain publishers or labels or even PROs. Uh, what, are, what are some of the biggest, at least, statements of resistance you've heard from, from the music industry? Well, I think, one, in any new technology, there's going to be some skepticism, right? So because no one's done this before, it's like, well, we don't want to be the first. Um, we have heard, let's see how you guys do. Let's see how you do with other catalogs. Um, and, and, and we're doing things with BMG, we're doing things with Concord, we're doing things with Reservoir. We're starting to build, you know, a lot of catalog, especially in the publishing side. Um, and I think once they realize that it is an opportunity to monetize, it is an opportunity to, for them to build their value to their own shareholders, because unless they can take an asset and show 2x, 3x, 5x in valuation on it, they're not really doing the best they can do for their own shareholders. So I think a lot of it is just proof of concept. They want to see this new idea come into play. They want to see how it how it works. They want to see someone else go first. Um, this is like being on YouTube in 2005, right? The first people that jumped on YouTube were like, it was a wide open playing field. People were like, what's YouTube? Why would I want to share a video? What, why would I want to put a video on a site I don't even know about? And now, you know, 2019, you've got I don't know, 50 billion people on YouTube um, that are putting up videos every, every half of a split second. I think 10 new videos are, are launched on a YouTube. So I think early days, um, the early adopters are going to be much harder to get. Um, but as they start to see success and as they start to see the, the checks roll in, the numbers get bigger, um, I think I think there's a lot more adoption coming. Have you had songwriters come in and try to use it and only to find out that their publisher or label um, doesn't want to share the royalty information or payouts with you through you? No, because they control those rights, right? If you're a songwriter on ASCAP, ASCAP is your collection agency. They work for you. And if they're not doing their job, you switch to BMI or CSAC or GMR. There's other options for you. So the labels technically work for the artist, right? The publishers technically work for the artist. Um, I, I think what's happening is it's bringing value back to the music. We saw something happen in the early 2000s with Napster and file sharing in general, where, where people started giving hard drives. Here's 40,000 songs. There's 8,000 songs to their friends. And uh, there's a generation now that thinks that music is free. And I know that's not the case. I think you know that's not the case. And for sure, the writers and producers and artists behind these songs that people enjoy for decades and decades understand there's value there, right? Someone put in an effort to write, to record, to perform those songs. 
And at some point, that has to be justified across the entire economy. And if it's a favorite song of mine that I listen to thousands of times, I, I think one of my favorite songs I probably listen to at least 10,000 times, I think that I need to know that there's value there. And if it's a chance to contribute into that value and support those writers and producers and artists, I want to do that. And I think as that ethos starts to get permeated throughout this ecosystem, more and more people will see the value and contribute to the people and songs that they really love. So I'm, I'm going to keep pushing Steve just because I'm, sure. I'm sort of bringing some of the kind of the skepticism that I've heard. I'm still, <laughs> my, my vote is still out. You know, I'm still like trying sure. to learn and stuff, but, but, I could imagine that there could be some, um, on the one hand, maybe rights disputes where somebody comes and says, Hey, I, I own X percentage of the song. Maybe they even have some paperwork that shows that they, maybe they, maybe there's other paperwork that shows something else. Do you have a method for handling rights disputes on the songwriter creator side? And does blockchain help solve anything there? Or is it still a matter of you still kind of have to work out the human side of these contracts and relationships in order to get the data correct in the blockchain? So we stand behind the source. So if that source is ASCAP or BMI or a PRO, or if that source is a label or a publisher, they're typically the ones that would get into those claims, um, you know, because they're the collection place. So if someone said, look, I have X percentage of the song. I'm going to dispute it. They're going to go either to the label publisher or PRO and file that dispute. Um, yeah, those happen often. Um, it's, it's, it's a common thing. It's handled internally within the source places. As far as putting that on blockchain, yeah, there's, there are issues with that. There's always going to be stuff that has to be corrected. Um, and those corrections can be made. It's not pretty sometimes, but there is a way to do that. Um, but it's just like anything else. I mean, in real estate, you're, you're going to say there's no disputes in real estate. It happens all the time. Right? Someone passes away, someone's a trustee on a property or an estate, and they say, hey, my sister owns 18% of that, and she's supposed to really own 15%. I mean, this, this happens in life. So anytime there's ownership, anytime there's something where someone has a stake in something, you're going to see people dispute it. You know, is it the most common thing in life? No. But does it happen? It does. Um, at this point, it's handled, again, by those sources, the labels, the publishers, and the PROs um, are, are handling that. And again, we stand behind them as far as a collection mechanism for our users and our royalties. Well, well, th this could come up in another kind of context too, which is if um, if you look at the uh, percentage of ownership rights and it adds up to more than a hundred percent, certain <laughs> revenue will just get locked up. It's not that it'll get paid out, but literally nobody will get paid until that gets um, until that gets sorted out. And so I'm I'm still kind of pushing like, well, how does blockchain fix that? Again, it doesn't it doesn't fix it, right? Blockchain is a result of something. Blockchain is a recordation. It's a recording of something that's already happened. It's not ahead of something. So if everybody says, look, these four people wrote the song, and then a year from now, a fifth person comes on and says, no, you know what? I wrote part of that song. It just as it would be with a typical publisher, um, there would have to be some type of agreement made between those parties. Either the guy didn't do it or he did do it. And once that agreement is found to be valid, then those rights are then reassigned. Um, that happens a lot. And, and sometimes it's in favor of the original rights holders and sometimes it's not. Um, you see a lot of these claims with uh, sound alikes, right? So uh, someone writes a song and, and supposedly it sounds like a Marvin Gaye song and there's some influence. And now someone says, look, you know, Marvin Gaye uh, is a state, is bringing a claim. These things are sorted out. Sometimes there's a, a settlement, sometimes there's not. Um, again, it's a case-by-case -case basis, and that's one song out of 50 million songs you can hear on Deezer or Spotify. 
Um, I think it's still a minority of what's happening out there. Does it happen? Of course. And the higher profile something is, the more it's going to get shot at. But again, that happens in civil litigation with divorces. It happens in real estate. It happens in every type of law where there's claimants that are that are trying to get something from someone else. So it's there. Um, we hope that blockchain lens is looked at as a tool. Again, if you have a source of truth that's agreed upon by all parties, um, and I've seen some some products and platforms coming out now where they're looking at incorporating the chain of title from the inception, which I think is very important. Um, there's a product called Song that I've seen that's looked at coming out that that when you have the creators sitting in a studio together and they agree on what the splits are, and you can see the chain from the time that song is created at zero till the time it's delivered to their label or publisher, that chain of title is very important. I think a lot of the sources of these disputes is when there's something like that that's not in place. There's not a, a, a chain of title that's clear. The more that you use technology to establish that clear chain of title, the less of these disputes will happen. I think blockchain lends itself as a tool to keep those things, you know, in a, in a, in a channel that's on the side. Do I think it's going to take a long time to clean them up to maybe they're like 2% or half a percent of, of all the songs? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's new technology, but I think it's an additive. I think it's something that's positive. I think it gives another frame of reference for those rights because right now they're held by different people. Like I mentioned, a publisher has a different database than the label does. The label has a different database than ASCAP does, right? And if those things don't correlate, there's an issue. So I think once everybody can agree that here's the single source of truth, Yes. Could it still have issues? Could it still have claimants? Of course. But once you start to carve away a lot of the fluff, you're getting down to a much more efficient system. Yeah. I think it's that, that um, kind of, I don't want to call it a hypothesis, but that kind of vision of a single source of truth that, that doesn't exist yet. And uh, um, I mean, all your, all your arguments and your logic make tons of sense. Um, and it's so tricky to to build this with so many moving parts <laughs> right now. It's tricky, and I think again, the key for us is if you start with the creator, right? If you can if you can get where that creator touches that consumer, and you see that relationship where it starts with the artist or the writer or the performer, that is where this all starts. And everybody else is added on top of that, or you know, years later, it's the third publisher, the eighth label, whatever it is. Once you have zero and you can actually document it like it's supposed to be those artists like if someone starts like that today or, or next year that chain of title is going to be much more secure and much more valid than something that was written 20 or 30 years ago so yeah technology can have existed before it existed so i think making use of the technology in the best ways that we can today is, is a positive you know are there issues with rights of course i think this is one type of solution I think lends itself towards bettering and bringing more efficiencies to that ecosystem because it is a mess right now. <laughs> so so um, a little bit more about Vest. How do you make money as a company? So we make money on the transactions. We're, we're again, a marketplace. So when a buyer comes in, uh, we take 5% as a transaction fee from the buy side. And then when royalties are paid through, we take 5% of the royalties coming back to that buyer. Uh, at this point, we make a $100 ISO fee from the artist. It's a flat $100 fee, whether they raise $100 or $10,000 or $100,000. So it's it's actually, we think, pretty reasonable. Um, many other services online are charging anywhere from 5 to 15%. I think even Amazon is at 30% on hard goods and software. So, um, you know, at some point, uh, we'll take a look at our revenue model. But initially, we want to make it very easy for artists to come on board and publishers and labels to put their catalogs on board without any friction. Um, so what we're doing is 
we're a volume business, right? We, we allow people to come in for as little as $5. We want this to democratize the music retail system so that people can buy in and support their favorite songs and artists. It's not a high-priced auction. It's not highest bidder. It's not high net, high net worth catalog deals. This is a way for the music lover and the person that's passionate about the song or the artist to really support them in a way that's meaningful. And you mentioned um, an artist or a writer that's got a percentage of a Beyonce song. Is that a, a real Vest success story? It is. Um, he's a guy named Jonathan Maivet. He has a piece of the song and he raised a lot of money from that piece. Um, he, he was very happy and he's, he's one of our success stories. We also have guys on the smaller side. There's an artist named Julian Extra who was one of our first uh, artists to come on the platform. He had 3,000 Facebook fans. And he actually took his his songs and engaged his fan base, I think, on a one-to-one basis. I think he actually got 3,000 buyers on the first piece he put up and ended up tripling his fan base. Um, he hired a PR firm from the proceeds of the raises and got himself on an ABC morning show in Chicago, which got him a lot more fans and a bigger scope. And then he moved to New York, and he was driving Lyft originally. And now he's able to focus 100% of his time on making music and doing what he does best. And to us, that's the real success, right? How do you focus on your livelihood? How do you focus on the craft that you've honed and practiced and worked towards all your life? Uh, my analogy is always, I can go down the street and get a job hanging drywall for $40 an hour with zero skills, zero anything. I can walk on and they'll pay me. If I'm a guitar player that's been playing guitar for 20 years and have a skill set, it's very difficult for me to put food on the table. It's very difficult for me to have that as a primary career. I probably have to have two or three other jobs to support myself and my family. So we want to actually go in and, and allow artists that have fan bases that are engaged, people that want to support these artists, support themselves in a way that's meaningful. Um, another success is a guy named Chuck English. He had written pieces of two Mac Miller songs, um, put them on the app. He was one of our first, it was actually our first check. It was almost $8,300. Um, and he said, I'm going to make $5,000 a month from this app. And I said, well, that's not how we're structured. He goes, no, I've got 200 songs that I've written. I'm going to put enough pieces of those songs up every month to get $5,000 from you. And I thought, there's a guy that's thinking about this as a resource, right? He's looking at this from an artist's perspective, but almost as a businessman going, how do I support myself doing what I love most without having to dilute myself or spend my energy on things that aren't making music? And I think that type of story as we grow and as we scale is, is super important because I think there's millions of independent artists across the world that have small fan bases that don't know how to monetize, don't have a structure in place to actually put meaningful income on the table. And we're, we're hoping to provide that in all aspects. How many artists have used the platform? We have, I think, about 490 ISOs, um, not all of which have been released. Uh, I think we do about 10 or 12 at any one time because we're building our user base as we build our content. So we don't want to put a song up that you know requires a million people to buy in because we don't have a million users yet. But as we get more users, we put on more content. As we get more content, we put on more users. So it's a scale issue. Um, you know, like I said, we have 10 to 12 things live at any given time. And we're looking at onboarding catalogs from these major publishers and labels. And as those come on board, uh, we also had a very good meeting with one of the big uh, streaming services where they're starting to realize their margins are very small for what they do. And if we can add value to the actual assets that they're dealing with and the songs they're dealing with, um, you know, perhaps there's a way for them to help themselves as well. So once we have access to bigger catalogs, we'll see you know, a whole different scale of business come about. 
Uh, one more question for you. Um, sure. The way that you describe those artist success stories sound a lot like um, the way Patreon talks and the way that Pledge Music spoke about the opportunities of, you know, page, in a way they're, they're talking more about like patronage of artists. Yours looks more like investment. Uh, how are you similar or different from those either crowdfunding or micro patronage platforms? So the, the biggest way is we give you something back, right? So uh, with Pledge and Patreon, I mean, a lot of it is a donation model where it's, hey, put your credit card in, put in 10 bucks a month, and we'll get you on our thank you list. We'll uh, you know, send you a video. We'll send you a shout out, whatever. There's, there's really no involvement at, at, the, at, the, at the basic level like we have. I mean, when someone's talking about letting you participate and partner with them in their earnings, um, in their royalty stream, I think that's very powerful. And we didn't want this to seem like, hey, you know, I, I, I just need some money from you. I need you to help me. It's more like partner with me, grow with me, scale with me, right? I'm going to make you a partner in my business. I mean, this is this is me writing more songs. If you help me and go out and advocate for me, the value of those songs goes up. And what we're seeing is, you know, the network effect. Once we're at scale, just having a song on the platform can increase the value because if we've got a million users and say 10% of them share a song with their fans and their, their social networks, that could be 10 million more spins on your song and 10 million streams on a song increases the value of that song exponentially. So we wanted to let people feel like there was a deeper level of involvement. It wasn't just a, a handout or a donation. Um, our model is, is music focused right now. I know that uh, Patreon, for example, has all types of artists and all types of uh, creative goods. Um, we're focused on IP. Um, we're going to start with music. We'll definitely get into other forms of IP, but we're basically an IP marketplace. Um, and I think that people see the value. They really want to come in and, and support people that they're working with, but they also want to have you know, a piece of something. I think this type of culture and this ecosystem that we're seeing now, especially with the, with the younger Gen Zs, is they want a partner. They want an experience. They, want, they don't want to be sold something. They don't want to just give something out with nothing back. They want to feel like they're part of something. And that partnership, that inclusion, that type of ecosystem where the consumer and the creator get together is what we're trying to engender. Wow, man, you're just going to make this cage match pretty hard for the skeptics because <laughs> <laughs> though I, I, I could have, I probably could have thrown some even harder questions at you and they probably will. Um, I, will. I think, you know, you've done a, a really good job at sidestepping some of the pitfalls that I think emerged in the earlier conversations about blockchain in the music industry. And in a lot of ways, it seems like um, that's kind of the moment right now for for blockchain and, and music is is there. It doesn't have to be the end all be all, but it's kind of like a, let's start building the parallel course or the marketplaces that aren't you know tied to say the streaming service things like that. So it's it, it's uh, it's. I mean, your your answers have made me definitely think a little bit more about what the possibilities are. So I, I appreciate you doing that. And you guys um, do some pretty cool events yourself in LA. Um, you've got this tech and dot, dot, dot music uh, event at General Assembly, September 17th in LA. Correct. It's uh, the one downtown on 360 East 2nd Street. So come down if you'd like. Uh, we've done a number of events, not just in Los Angeles, but in New York and San Francisco, around the country, actually around the world, where we attract people that are like-minded, that are interested in tech, interested in music, and kind of the juncture of those two. And it's pretty interesting. There's a lot that can be said and a lot of ideas that start flowing when you get good minds together. So really looking forward to having anybody come out. I know you're, you're participating as well. So we're really happy to have you, Dimitri. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm psyched because it's going to be a little bit of a snapshot of some of the folks we've got too, since you're speaking on the 17th and also at Music Tectonics. Vicky Nauman yes. uh, is also going to be at Music Tectonics. And the wonderful um, uh, executive director of UCLA Center for Music Innovation, Dr. Gigi Johnson, is going to be on your panel as Gigi. well. And Gigi, um, who has a great podcast you guys should check out as well, Innovating Music. And your chief growth officer, Jin Yu, is participating Jin. as well. On yeah, we love Jin. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, if you're close to LA and you can get there by Tuesday, uh, come meet me, come see Steve, come meet his crew and, uh, and let's, uh, let's uh, continue the conversation there and uh, come check out music tectonics because Steve's on the blockchain cave match. You either got to cheer him on or you got to be the one throwing the rotten vegetables. <laughs> challenge me, throw anything you've got. I'm ready for the challenge. Come on, bring it. <laughs> Steve, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I'll see you next week. Yeah, Dimitri, thank you so much. Thank you guys out there. Vest.co. Yeah. V E Z T.co. Cool. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dimitri. And thank you for listening to Music Tectonics. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That way you know when new episodes come up and when you know when new ideas are coming out on uh, the podcast so that you can stay fresh on what's going on in the music industry. And come check out musictectonics.com. If you sign up for our newsletter there, you get $50 off the badge to the Music Tectonics Conference, which again is taking place in Los Angeles, October 28th through 29th, 2019. And thanks so much for listening. You're listening to Music Tectonics.